he ran his ship into a reef or something. And, you know, because he wasn't paying attention because he was full of himself. And then when it was time to try to get the women and children into the lifeboats, he got in the first one. What was in him came out of him. And that's what battle tends to do. It brings out what's really in you. But if you're untested, you don't know what's in you. Let me get back on track here. When it comes right down to it, is he going to look out for number one or will his primary loyalties be to Christ? Will he do his own will or that of God? Will he love self or will he love the Lord? Being born again means the person is converted from a self-centered existence to one which becomes increasingly Christ-centered. The message of the cross is diametrically opposed to loyalty to self. Jesus says you're not to believe in yourself, you're to believe in me. You're not to love yourself, you're to love God. You're not to be stingy with yourself, you're to give yourself away for the sake of others. In short, you are to deny yourself. That's what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to do this. But if you want to be a Christian, this is what it means. Yes, you can and should repent of sin, but first of all, you need to know what it means to renounce self. Renounce your desires, your ambitions. Renounce a life of autonomy where you pick and choose and you decide and you do what you want to do. You know, you don't come to this by mustering it up. You come to it because you get a sight of what the Lord is like. You could see the Lord in Corey and Betsy, couldn't you? Did you see the Lord? You start to see him and then you look at yourself. And you know what that breeds? Contempt for yourself. And it's that contempt for self that drives you to your knees and causes you to cry out to God for mercy to change you. You don't get changed by being self-satisfied. All right, number two, you must take up your cross. And in Luke's version, he adds in daily. You must take up your cross daily. Now, people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas about what this means to have a cross, to bear a cross. You know, it's my mother-in-law's my cross. Or my boss. Or this car that I have. My, that's the cross I have to bear. No, that's not what it means. It's just typical, nonsensical I won't say what it is. You know, the people in first century Roman Empire, they understood fully well what Jesus was talking about right here. Because you'd go into probably any city, but certainly Jerusalem. You'd go into the city on the right along the main highway into the city. The north part of the city, 
There would be crosses, actually stakes in the ground. <laughs> Probably who knows how far they they went. And people were being regularly hung on those crosses. It's kind of like what ISIS was doing. With, they would take heads and stick them on fence posts and stuff to remind people. In fact, I just saw where the Taliban had done that, hung some guy up so people could see and be terrified. That's what the Romans did. They're the ones that came up with it. People understood when Jesus said to take up your cross. That's what you did. You took the cross beam and you had to carry it after you've been beaten half to death. You have to carry it through the city. Everyone would be spitting at you, mocking you because you're a criminal or whatever. And then they take you and nail you to it and stick you up there until you just expire. And it didn't usually happen in six hours. Some people were up there for days. Mercifully, God took Jesus in six hours. Thank you, Lord, that it didn't have to go on any longer. Taking up your cross daily means that you are living a life of, of dying to self and mortifying your flesh. That's all it means. It should be a regular part of our lives. And for a true believer, it is a regular part of your life. And you must follow me. And that really is referring to the daily ongoing nature of Christianity, of constantly seeing Jesus in front of you. Lord, where are you going today? What are we doing today? Following him, living the way he wants you to live and so on. You know, people think they just need to respond to a little altar call and they make their little pledge, their little commitment, and then they can basically just kind of go back to the way they lived life before, but they'll just add in a little bit of Christianity, a little flavoring to their life. But let me tell you something. If you do go through the narrow gate, first of all, it won't be like that. It won't be with that attitude. But when you go through the narrow gate, then you go out onto the narrow path. And you have to stay on that narrow path for the rest of your life. It becomes a way of life to you. You know, having a, a regular devotional life, thinking about the needs of others, being in, um, quick to humble yourself to others, seeking God's will and living in it, all these things become second nature to you. It's hard, but it's wonderful. You know, and don't miss what I'm saying here about it being second nature. If it seems impossible to you now, it's because you have been all over the place. You don't know what the narrow, the narrow path looks like. But it becomes just the way you do life. Except without all the world and without all the junk and all the stuff that will make you miserable. The self-life. It really is a wonderful life. Well, anyway, then verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The life of following Jesus is a total paradox. 
You win by losing. You live by dying. You're exalted by humbling yourself. You gain not through getting more, but through giving more. It's all, it's just a paradox. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the great exchange that Jesus brought you here to get. He brought you here. If I knew your names, I'd start naming you out. I know Evan's name. Evan, this is what he brought you here for. He's the only one I know. He brought you here so that you could take that life that you led before you came here and he can give you a whole different life, top to bottom. Some of you guys have no idea the suffering you've caused others. You're just so full of yourselves. So oblivious to other people. The wives that have been broken hearted and children. I'm not trying to beat up on you, but you've got to come into reality or you'll never repent. So Satan wants to offer you whatever you want. Jesus takes it to the furthest extreme. If you had the whole world, you've been living in lust for pleasure, for this, for that. What if Satan offers you the whole world? When you're on your deathbed, will it have been worth it? The reality is most people are willing to forfeit their souls for the tiniest little sliver of what the world offers. They don't need the whole world. Just give me this. Matthew Henry said the soul is the spiritual and immortal part of man which thinks and reasons has a power of reflection but will shortly separate from the body. Our own souls are of greater value to us than all the wealth, honor, and pleasures of this present time. Here is the whole world set in the scale against one soul, and tackle is written on it. It is weighed in the balance and found wanting, found too light to weigh it down. The loss of the soul is so great a loss that the whole, the gain of the whole world will not make it up. If once the soul be lost, it is lost forever.
Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come. He is coming. In the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds, not according to some cheap profession that is never lived out. Not because you went to church. He's going to repay you for the way you lived your life. We will give an accounting for our lives. All right, so that's the message that Jesus brought. But that's not the only place he gave it. Luke 9 Luke 9 is where this same message is at, but at the end of the chapter, verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That's what most of us have said. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This verse, that statement, is special to me because when Kathy and I were getting ready to go on the road in 1989, we bought this broken down motorhome and sold everything we had or gave it all away and we had a big yard sale and people were coming into our house and buying our furniture for dirt cheap and hauling it all off and... and um, I think it was the morning after this big sale, I walked into one of the rooms. We had this antique bed set or furniture. I can't even remember what it was, but I walked in and the room was empty. And it was just like panic hit me. What have we done? And right then, as clear as if any one of you spoke to me, The Lord spoke to me in my spirit. I mean clear as can be. And this is what he said. The foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was my calling. And, you know, (laughs) we gave it all up to build this ministry. And we didn't know that God was going to do all that he did. All we knew is he was telling us, go out on the road. That's all we knew. Go out on the road. We had nine months of preaching lined up. I didn't know if we were going to spend the rest of our lives doing that or what. Kathy walked away from the job of her dreams so that we could do that. We understood that it was going to cost us something. Anyway, he continues on and Someone else, he he invites this other person, follow me. And that's what he's doing with you guys. He's inviting every one of you that have come here. He's inviting you to follow him. But, excuses. 
And he said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And then Luke 17, he's going into the end times and talking about what it's going to be like on this earth before he comes back. It's going to be like the days of Noah, he says, you know, where everyone's eating and drinking. Life is just going on. No one's thinking anything of a flood. What's a flood? They didn't even know what it was. There was no such thing as floods in those days. And Noah had been warning them, but no one's paying attention to him. It seemed like he was crazy, like a crackpot. He says, it'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. A time of total debauchery. Man, what do we need? And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. And it's said in the, I can't remember how it goes. Ongoing, present, whatever the grammar thing is. Keep remembering. Keep reminding yourself. This is what it means to put your hand to the plow and look back. You're not fit for the kingdom. You know who did that? Who turned her into a pillar of salt? It was Jesus who did it. And then he says, right after that, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Right there in the middle of an eschatological sermon. John 12, different scenario, whole different time, situation. Some Greeks come to talk to one of, they asked to talk to Jesus, and Jesus just completely doesn't even pay attention because he probably saw in their hearts and knew they're not sincere, they're not serious. I'm not even going to waste time talking about it. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Luke 14. Large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's just Middle Eastern hyperbole. He's just, but he is saying that the comparison of the love that you should have for God compared to others or anything else, is so diametrically, not diametrically opposite, but so far apart that you can't even put the two in the same sentence. 
And he goes on again. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he talks about who, which ones of you go to build a tower. You know, without sitting down and thinking through and making sure you got what you need to finish it. This whole point is to think through, to think through this decision. And that's part of the problem in the church is that people haven't thought through what it really costs. Either that or they've been taught some pathetic version of the gospel that has no teeth in it, no reality to it. You know, Steve Hill uh, at Brownsville, and Kathy and I were there for seven months in those meetings, and I loved seeing people run to that altar and repent. I mean, it was wonderful. It really was wonderful, and I have nothing but respect for Steve Hill. But the one thing that I had questioned, and I'm I say a question, I don't know if he was right or not. But he used to just, I mean, he'd spend 10, 15 minutes on the altar trying to get every single person up to that altar that he could, you know, coaxing and begging and warning and threatening and, I mean, anything he could do. And, you know, I mean, it's the heart of an evangelist to see people want to come to the Lord while the... The Lord is there. It's the opportunity. It's when the Lord is speaking, the Spirit is moving. You want to see people saved. But the the only thing I question about it is how many people ran to that altar without really counting the cost and then just ended up flaking out later. You know, all I'll say is We all do need to count the cost, but as part of that formula, we also need to count the cost of not following him. Paul told the Corinthians, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. This is the message of the cross that I've been sharing with you. That's what it is. That's what Paul was talking about because that message was through all of Jesus' teachings. I've only named a few things, but I promise you, you look through all the parables, look through the stories, look through the the way Jesus interacted with people, the rich young ruler or, or whoever. It was always the same basic messages. Message you were... In trouble spiritually, and you must repent. You need a complete change. A complete transformation, not a little alteration. I'm going to just stop. 
where I'm at. Lord, I just pray that whatever it is that you desired to accomplish today, Lord, that you would accomplish it. issue isn't what you do on Sunday morning. The issue is the way you live your life from Monday to Saturday. The issue is who has your heart. What you cherish in your heart is what you are becoming like. Friends and I are walking down the street. Bam, Playboy magazine. Totally rocked my world. Uh, This lifestyle that I was living just got out of control. In a very short time, my life spiraled completely out of control. The whole time I've been looking at pornography, the longer I looked at it, it began to get progressively worse. I couldn't really explain what it was, but I was instantly addicted. You cannot take steps down a path and avoid arriving at the destination. God wants your heart. Satan wants your heart. Whoever has your heart will control you. Every time you sin, your desire for the things of God dies a little bit. Your faith dies a little bit. Your desire to be free dies a little bit. And with it, the hope to get free. So how do we win this war? And emerge with the victory that Christ has earned for us. What's missing is God's power to transform a person. For God to come in and do a work to set us free of of something that has taken hold in our lives that we have allowed in there requires surrender. The Lord was able to show me that, yes, I can set you free from this. And hope for me is actually within reach. That was something I never felt before. I don't care what kind of sexual sin you're involved in. I don't care how bound up you are. If you will sincerely apply the principles that are in that book, God will absolutely set you free.